This is Andrew from FX Medicine. We thank you so much for your support over the last two years. We'd really love to remain clinically relevant to your practice. So if you know of an expert in some area, please let us know. You can contact us on fxmedicine.com.au, Facebook or Twitter. Medicine, and I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. Joining me on the line today is Ananda Mani. Ananda's a qualified naturopath of 20 years in the profession, including 12 years of clinical practice. For much of that period, her focus has been on the natural management of skin conditions, and more recently, integrated pain management for acute and chronic pain. Her broad range of skills, developed from work in research and development and raw material supply, as a previous director of a large multidisciplinary centre, a successful online organic skincare store, now senior lecturer in nutrition at Endeavour College of Natural Health in Brisbane, and private clinician of a successful integrative practice, Athletica Physical Health in Brisbane. Ananda's passion for education and continued learning has led her to undertake postgraduate studies in human nutrition at Deakin University, and more recently she's moved to a master's in the science of pain management at Sydney University, aligning more closely with her special interests in clinical practice. Ananda is a member of the Australian Pain Society and International Association for the Study of Pain, which is IASP, and I welcome you warmly to FX Medicine today, Ananda. Thanks for having me, Andrew. Ananda, apart from general excellence in practice, you've got a bit of a name for treating all sorts of stubborn skin conditions. Um, today we're going to be discussing the management of psoriasis using natural medicine. But how did treating skin complaints become a point of passion for you? Because a lot of patient, a lot of practitioners shy away from this. Yeah, um, so it seems. Uh, well, it was um, in my mid-20s and um, I think often one becomes interested in something because it's going on for themselves. And that's what happened with me. I uh, developed, um, I would call it external chemical sensitivities on my skin and not quite adult acne, but just say regular adult um, breakouts. Yep. Um, and they started to become more and more constant. And at, at that stage, I, of course, tried everything topical and tried to avoid doing anything, you know, internal lifestyle or diet. But eventually I got to the point where I uh, got desperate enough, I guess, to actually make some really radical changes in my diet, you know, do some gut healing, change my lifestyle mm. and clean my skin up and, and thought to myself, well, this isn't, I need to be doing this for other people as well. So that's how I got into it. And it was through you know my own issues, yeah, and skin health. and then you've you've sort of branched out and and really taken on the the responsibility of not just you know comedones and acne, but indeed all sorts of confounding skin decisions, um, skin conditions, which today we're going to be discussing psoriasis. So yes. you know that would have been, I would imagine, a little bit scary in the beginning when you're saying, well, I know about this, but I don't know about that stuff over there. Oh, for sure. 
Um, and, you know, part of it is you're madly researching in the background when you start something out and mm. part of it you're working with your clients to see what works, you know, as you go. And and that probably sounds terrible, but, you know, you become more and more confident as things start to work yes. and you cut out things as they don't or they exacerbate skin conditions. So there was definitely a process of that in the early days that was, okay, well, I know that works in those situations, so I need to start doing more of that. Those, you know, those therapies, lifestyle um, and dietary changes, you know, looking at the, ho- the whole aspect of it. Yeah. I, I, I don't see a problem with sort of, you know, trying therapies and weeding out the ones that don't work because a, a, not just a perfect diagnosis but a perfect treatment plan occurs over time and I think that's, you know, something that you just need to work with with your patients. Oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah absolutely. So yeah, psoriasis particularly can be quite a tricky condition and even medicine strives to control the you know the proliferative skin lesions um, typically this condition sometimes indeed using some rather nasty drugs so can you take us through a little bit about psoriasis what it is what it what it presents as yeah sure so of course um, it's considered a chronic autoimmune uh, condition but I also think about it as an autoinflammatory condition mm-hmm. um, and it's characterized by clearly demarcated red scaly plaques that sometimes look a little bit silvery and if you pick off you know pick off those plaques they'll have you know red pinpoint blood spots underneath them so that's classically what they look like and what's driving that appearance is essentially hyperplasia of the epidermal keratinocytes there's also vascular hyperplasia and angiogenesis in the, in the more chronic cases and um, significant infiltration of immune cells, mm. so T cells, neutrophils and other leukocytes. Um, and that's kind of the, the very um, superficial uh, case of what's going on. It, it occurs in about 2 to 3% of the population and that prevalence increases linearly. So... Um, you know, rarely occurs in you know, maybe 0.2% of the population in, in young children, but increasing up to that 2 to 3% in, at around 16 to the mid 20, 16 years to mid 20s. Yep. And so that's a predominant prevalence age, but there's another age group at 55 to 65 where you see a significant prevalence and um, there's possibly slightly connected but slightly different drivers in those two population I mean uh, age groups. Yeah. Which I found really fascinating. Yeah. And um yeah, it seems that in that earlier age group there's a much stronger uh genetic predisposition and um often associated with the histocompatibility histocompatibility antigen HLA six W C that's kind of the sorry one yeah. that's talked about in the literature and be more associated with obesity and metabolic syndrome. There's less of a genetic component, but then there's bigger lifestyle factors such as alcohol and smoking. Um, And so it's interesting when you look at the different uh, kind of drivers of those two age groups. What happens, though, in the mid-60s, I mean, the younger group, sorry, what happens in the younger group as a, a thing called the cirrhotic march, as the disease progresses with age and the severity increases, they're more likely to develop metabolic syndrome. So you see that kind of metabolic syndrome obesity component comes into um, even those who've had the um, who, where the disease was initiated earlier. Yeah. 
So, so I find that quite interesting because you, you look at the, um, the condition a little bit differently. I think the thing, though, about psoriasis, you know, there's this typical assumption about the, you know, the atopic dermatitis occurs on the inside of the cubit and the knees and, and the psoriasis occurs on the outside, but it's, you know, certainly not restricted to that. I've seen um, at least one patient with psoriasis demarcating their scalp line. Um, others with just oh, okay. splotches within their scalp. Um, so, you know, can you go through the the variation that you see and just how it affects people's lives? Yeah, of course. Um, yes, of course, elbows and knees um, are a common presentation, but you can also see it on the stomach mm-hmm. um, and the perianal area and the lower back. That's quite common. You don't obviously see that in public, but in clinic yeah. you'll see that presentation. Yeah. Um, but behind the ear and scalp is really common. It's up, up to 90%, but at least 75 to 90% of people with psoriasis will get some um, periauricular or scalp presentation. And uh, so I see that quite significantly. And, of course, it um, varies in its severity. So, yes, as you say, little patches all the way through to people who've got full presentation. Um, another common thing that you'll see is um, presentation on the nails. Um, ah, yes. And that occurs in about 50% of people with psoriasis. Yeah. Um, and I think probably in terms of comorbidities, one of the most... Um, significantly affected population groups within this is those with it on their face. Yeah. You know, um, and because one of the um, significant comorbidities with psoriasis is actually its psychological burden, and that's due to the disease visibility. And so there's really high risk of and incidence of depression, anxiety, and suicide. Um, suicide. Um, which is, you know, quite alarming and when you think about it. Absolutely. Um, but not surprising when you consider that the disease is um, so significantly related to inflammation. Yeah. So the other comorbidities um, I mentioned before was metabolic syndrome, mm. but um, also strongly associated with um, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, cardiovascular disease along that. Um, pathway and then um, Crohn's and some other autoimmune conditions and celiac. So this start to see a couple of other autoimmune presentations and thoracic arthritis. This reeks of uh, inflammation, which uh, is gut based. So I'm um, just oh, yes. tying that back into you know when you say um, T cell infiltrates um, in the um, subdermal layers of the skin. How important is treating the gut then? Oh, it's critical. Um, sometimes I think with the, the gut-skin access, there's, um, uh, you can kind of look at it as um, inside out or outside in, and, and I think and I'm going to explain that a little bit, but it's both ways. Um, and there's, look, there's several mechanisms by which um, microbes initiate auto-reactivity, uh, cross-reactivity, bystander activation. But yep. in psoriasis, it's increasingly emphasised is the production of super antigens by microbes um, and as a result of um, endotoxin um, endotoxin um, peptidoglycans um, which induce that autoimmune inflammatory pathology in psoriasis Mm -hmm. and they're um, basically due to um, dysbiosis, decreased bacterial diversity and um, 
I was trying to think of something more intelligent to say, but leaky gut, essentially. (laughs) (laughs) Well, um, leaky gut is not an approved term to a medico, but intestinal permeability is. (laughs) Yes, thank you. (laughs) That's it. That's what I'm looking for is intestinal permeability. Um, So all of those, those three factors have been shown in in patients with psoriasis. There's definitely signs of intestinal permeability, um, reduced bacterial diversity, and... um, yeah, so those factors play a role in that, and you can. They've done some tests and looking at, you know, well, how can we show that the gut's involved with um, the skin presentation? And psoriasis patients ex- exhibit positive skin tests to gut bacterial antigens, um, and there's also skin colonisation by common gut pathogens or um, oh, really? commensal bacteria. Oh, yes. so, okay. So we can see that they um, cause exacerbations in psoriasis. Yeah. And it's not one specific or, or multiple microbes. It, it's more that they shift the microbial balance to reduce or exaggerate um, immune responses. Um, so it, it might be that one exacerbates, you know, one particular microbe exacerbates a condition, but the general um, dysbiotic milieu in the gut is what then is replicated if you like, you have a skin dysbiosis as well. Yeah. So, you know, standard medical treatment includes um, cyclosporin, methotrexate, even now they're looking at uh, some of the nibs and, and the monoclonal antibody drugs. How does your pro- approach differ from standard treatment? And indeed, do you use it in concert with those? Yes. Yes, I do use it in concert. Um I think, you know, the topicals, which are the first-line therapies, such as, well, emollients is just straightforward, but yeah. I think the most common topicals are coal tar, which is really low efficacy, so I'm surprised that it's still being recommended, but um, steroids and vitamin D analogs or a combination of those. So certainly I would use treatment, um, anything that I, management that I would do would be in combination with a treatment like that that's been recommended by the GP yeah. mostly or a dermatologist. Um, then there's phytotherapy. Um, so that's the narrowband UVB or UVIA plus storolin treatments. And yes, again, I would certainly and do work in with um, that, that type of treatment. Um, some of the systemics I can work with, but I find, Andrew, that people come to see me who don't want to go on the systemics or the biologics. Mm or have been on them and ha- and come off them and had severe exacerbations yeah. and so don't want to go back on it. Yeah. So in many ca- most cases, I'm not treating in concert with or managing case in concert with systemics and, and biologics yeah. agents. I'm really kind of managing it because people have had that experience and not liked it or it's lost efficacy, which happens. Or they don't want to go there. Yeah, but but is there any sort of caveats or dangers with using natural medicines to support internal gut health, and as well as um, you know alleviating some of the skin um, symptoms um, with the medicines? Is there any real danger interactions that you see, or that you've, that practitioners no. need to be aware of? No, I would be a little bit cautious with um, some of the biologic agents, just because. They're working on by targeting T cells and blocking interleukin 12 or interleukin 23, and that can have like an well, it increases the risk of serious infection or malignancy. Well, yep. it's hypothetical, but yeah. so I'd be a little bit careful about kind of being gung ho about treating the immune system. 
in in that sense. Yeah. Um, but not really. I haven't found when I have worked with people who are on the systemic or biologic um, agents that I can't do anything. Um, I certainly am just a little bit more cautious about what I do um, and probably tend to be a little bit more diet, lifestyle and gut repair oriented rather than um, directly down-regulating inflammation as well because that job's being done. Hmm. So topical versus internal treatment. How quickly could one expect relief? And, you know, do you, do you find that there might be a period of even exacerbation before they get relief? Um, are you kind of looking about the 12 month, uh, 12, 12 week, 12 week mark mm. for, um, some, some shifts, significant shifts. Um, with regard to topical versus internal, I think always internal is, is the first thing that you do. You need to start working with diet, um, you know, whether it be to work with their gut health or work with the metabolic risks or um, reduce the triggers um, first and foremost and the lifestyle and get them moving, stop them being sedentary, those types of things. But um, topicals are an adjunct therapy. They might support what you're doing internally, but they're not a replacement for it hmm. is basically what I recommend. And look, I compound some of the the, the topical agents and use those with patients instead of relying on the more conventional first-line therapies that a GP or dermatologist might use um, just to get the effect that we're looking for. Mm. Um, so there's those possibilities there as well. Um, there was another part to that question. Oh, I, I think, oh exacerbation. I think, yeah. Um, if, if a patient gets an exacerbation, I first of all look at what happened leading up to it yeah. and then... Um, I will look at what you know what management we're using, but I don't really have a kind of opinion about. Sorry, I have an opinion about exacerbation, and if I've caused an exacerbation through something that I'm doing, well, I haven't really thought it through very well, because if you um, start working with psoriasis, and the aim is to dampen down inflammation to reduce the drivers of that interleukin 23 T helper 17 pathway, that's what you're doing, hmm. then you shouldn't really be causing an exacerbation. Um, so I haven't really been in this situation, of maybe in the early days. I probably, yeah, actually I can think that in the early days I used to use a lot of fish oils hmm. and I used to kind of pour them in and they were, there's people who came in with raging inflammation, you know, and I'd pour the fish oils in and it either wouldn't work at all mm -hmm. or it would get slightly worse. And I, I thought to myself, what's going on here? Why why isn't fish oil working? There's high arachidonic acid in the plaques. It should be, you know, um, there's this should be having a really good effect, yep. but it's not. Yep. But I just think if there's that much inflammation, you might, you know, with a polyunsaturated fatty acid, you might get lipid oxidation. Yeah. Yeah, so it made it worse. So, yes, probably in the early days I might have said that I can think of a couple of cases where that's occurred. Yep. But, yeah, these days I think I need to be more specific and make sure that that's not happening. Yeah, so do you find that, like most of our naturopathic care, we've got to leave the supplements as supplements? 
limits and our diet should be our main limits. Um, so do you yeah. find that, you know, if you work on the gut, if you, you know, till the garden soil and make sure that it's fertile and that there's no holes in your gut, whether you want to call it leaky gut or intestinal permeability, whatever. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, but do you find if you do that, then your foundations for supporting that person's condition are much more, ha- um, have better long-term effects? Yes, indeed, I do. I think you have to do all of that foundational work. But I also think with psoriasis, you have to be very specific. Right. Um, and that is because it is probably one of the most well-understood autoimmune conditions. Um, and that pathway of the dendritic cell, interleukin-23, TH17, which is the direct or the most pathological driver of psoriasis is known to have the greatest impact. So yes, there's TH1 polarization and there's lower T regulatory cells, but it is that is a significant pathological driver. And we know that because the biologic agents that target that pathway mm. get near 100% remission. Oh, really? Um, yes. Oh. So this is, this is kind of a bit of a... That there is a specific pathway that is the key driver of this condition. So I was under so the impression that... So we can muck that... around with TH1 yeah. or, yeah, but you're not going to get... I'm not going to say muck around. You're going to get some benefit. Yeah. And, but it is that IL-23, TH17 pathway that is the most significant pathological driver of this condition. Mm. So, I, like, I was under the impression that kind of like rheumatoid arthritis, that was rather a confounding condition to treat even for medicos. Is that not the case? I think the fact that it is a lifelong condition mm. and there's other factors that will even, um, when you are treating this condition and you're treating it using specific, there's, there's things that will flare it up. Right. And, and stress is a huge one, ah, huge right. one. You cannot you. underestimate the effects of stress. And, yep. of course, there's the gut-brain-skin axis there, so stress affecting the gut, but also stress directly affecting um, the the presentation and, and the severity of the psoriasis itself. Right. Um, so there's that there's that issue. The, the fact is that a lot of the biological agents um, they do decrease its effectiveness with time. Yep. And even to get to treatment with a biologic agent, which is considered the most effective, it's not automatically. Uh, you know, um, you, you often have to pay for that upfront. Yes, yes. And it's kind of a, a last line therapy. And and they're limited um, certainly in conditions like Crohn's disease, if once you go on an authorization script for some of these MAB drugs, these monoclonal antibodies, um, you're sort of on the list. And if you drop off that list, you don't go back onto that list. <laughs> That's right. Uh, yeah. And, you know, there's risks coming off them too. And mm. there can be, um, with some of them, quite severe, rapid and severe um, exacerbations that are worse than it was prior to treatment. So. Ah. Why are they effective? And then they're fairly low toxicity, so there's not a lot of cumulative toxicity with them. There are potential for those theoretical risks, such as um, more chronic infections and malignancies, which does occur. Mm. Don't get me wrong. But, you know, the safety profile is okay with these drugs, but there are, you know, associated problems. Attended That's right. And also they tend with time to become less effective. Hmm. So can you take our practitioners through 
you know, and I hate saying the word typical because I don't believe in typical, but common, let's say common diet, lifestyle, herbs, and, and what other supplements you might use in, in helping people with psoriasis? Yeah, sure. So I'll start with diet because um, that's kind of foundational. Absolutely. There's, there's common exacerbators with the diet and alcohol is definitely one of those. And in so I've had patients where we've had them completely under in remission it's been a beautiful thing, but they haven't been able to stay away from the alcohol. And just, a, you know, when one lady I remember, it was one whiskey. Wow. <laughs> everything off again. So that was a bit, a bit extreme. But, you know, alcohol, disrupt, you know, drives the inflammation because it disrupts that skin barrier. Yep. And, um, you know, it causes gut mucosal damage and um, so has the, there's the gut skin issue access as well. So alcohol is one that you really have to, to look at. The other thing about alcohol is that it tends to be high in that late age, high usage in that late age, later age group um, that I talked about. Yeah. And that is, with, is it a cause or an effect? Yeah, right. You know, did the alcohol actually, you know, drive the psoriasis or is it the result of, you know, the psychological burden of the disease. Yep. So there is an aspect of that too. Smoking, um, that's a bit of a tricky one just due, due to the addictive nature of it. But a smoking um, is will um, significantly increase the severity of psoriasis and it's really hard to get any traction without cutting out the smoking. Yeah. Um, there's a strong association with gluten, but only in people who are really who are positive to anti-gliadin and antibodies. Um, so in those that aren't, I tend to remove gluten, you know, really highly processed gluten-containing foods and processed foods in general, but the strongest association is those who have celiac. Um, and they've looked at a number of research papers and showed that people that don't or aren't positive, hmm. um, it's variable results. Yeah. So that's on an individual basis. Um, you really have to look at the metabolic syndrome and weight. And I've had some fantastic results in clinic due to patients incidentally losing weight and their psoriasis clears. Right. <laughs> and it's like, excellent. Yeah. Keep doing that. <laughs> yeah. It had nothing to do with me, yeah. but I want you to keep going the way you're going. Wow. Yeah. So um, I don't think we can discount that. And that's that low-grade inflammation from yep. the metabolic syndrome. Yep. Um, apart from that with diet, you look at foods like tomatoes, citrus, caffeine and excess red meat, but there doesn't tend to be a really strong pattern. It really comes down to you looking at what individually um, is causing gut dysbiosis or um, exacerbations with the individual patient. Um, I do look at uh, comorbidities and or the risk of those because I don't think you can ignore, you know, depression, anxiety, yes. um, and also Absolutely. you want to kind of slow that psoriatic march. Mm. You know, so you don't actually want someone to progress mm. um, down that pathway, particularly if they're early onset psoriasis. So you're mindful of all of that and thinking about, well, how can we prevent that occurring or slow that occurrence? But I do. Um, I do use what I call specific. So there's that holistic underpinning, but then there's specifics that I go for. And some of the specifics about the skin itself and acid mantle repair or skin barrier repair, 
because we can talk about the immune system and talk about the gut and the nervous system, but what about the skin? That's the target organ. And so we have to look at what's happening with the skin. And there is a disrupted skin barrier, and repairing that is really fundamental. Mm -hmm. Um, Without that, there's just ongoing inflammation and there's uh, trans-epidermal water loss and um, and just greater degree of exposure to irritants, which are more likely to trigger psoriasis again. Mm-hmm. So I think that's really important. Um, acid mental repair or um, skin barrier repair, that's when you look at things like you could um, polyunsaturated fats, omega-3s, um, but also topically like ceramides that re- work really well. Um, and then specifics to reduce inflammation. So there's a couple of really... Um, in those patients with a genetic predisposition, they have um, some genetic associations in the innate immune system. So there's that increased NF-kappa B signaling and more importantly, probably failure to downregulate that. Mm. Um, increased interleukin-23 signaling. And then the, the adaptive is increased TH1 and significantly that pathogenic factor is TH17 and um, low T-regs, T-regs yep. cells. Yep. So you can you can kind of target those, I think. Um, we can target those pathways with some of the great anti-inflammatory herbs we have, like um, turmeric and um, quercetin, um, white willow and boswellia. And then when the inflammation's um, dampened down a little bit, you know, essential fatty acids can come in at that stage. Right. Yeah, so... You know, just layering how you will um, use those herbs. So my first line therapies, are, uh, if someone's highly inflamed, are more likely to be turmeric and quercetin um, and boswellia. Uh-huh. And then the second line therapy would be the essential fatty acids and the skin barrier repair. Right. And then dampening down that, um, you know, arachidonic-based so inflammation. The, so that you're not sort of um, putting in a, a polyunsaturated fatty acid, which in itself might be um, at risk of causing inflammation. Is that so, so sort of handling some of the inflammation first before adding in the fats? Is that what you're saying? Absolutely. Yep. Absolutely. And at the same time, of course, working on the gut mm. because you can put in things there that will um, downregulate that um, TH17 and TH1 polarisation. Saccharomyces boulardii, which will increase your Tregs. Um, also some vitamin D in there and there's it's pretty common in most of the research to show that um, patients with psoriasis have low vitamin D levels and can in fact respond quite well. The the results with vitamin D um, are variable Mm. and sometimes it might be about the dose because there's a couple of higher dose trials that are more showing um, better, stronger benefits than the lower dose vitamin D trials. But again, You'd test and measure, you know. You'd test before you did anything high dose there. I, re- I remember um, years ago now. Gosh, um, a shout out to Professor Michael Hollick, um, um, who's just an incredibly wonderful man. But he he inadvertently ended up having one of the largest uh, long distance psoriasis clinics, if you like, um, uh, in America because of his use with a vitamin D analog. And then apparently what happened was somebody bought the patent and used a, a totally, oh. totally low dose. <laughs> it was totally sort of oh. inconsistent with what, with, what, with what was working. But I understand now there's um, um, a combination drugs. With, so there's a steroid and vitamin D analog. Is that right? 
effective. Yeah. Yeah. I still think it's a lower but dose than what he used, yeah. Yeah, and and still the long term use of steroids, you, you know, you don't want to go there yeah, if yeah. you don't have to with a yeah. patient. <laughs> um, yeah, so that's probably the way that I approach it. I look at nutrients that might be individually um, deficient, but there's common ones like folic acid and zinc, but that just might be as often just due to the rapid skin cell turnover. Yeah. And I do just want to say something about zinc. With zinc, um, the the research has looked at this and says that, well, yes, often um, patients with psoriasis have so low zinc levels. But I think what's important, it's not the total concentration of zinc or, or of copper. It is the ratio of zinc to copper that is actually linked to severity of psoriasis not one the con- total concentration of one or the other. Yeah. So um, it has to if they've got a high copper to zinc ratio, that's what's linked to a um, high severity of psoriasis. So I think that um, it's just important to check both. If you're going to you know check the levels, you check zinc and copper and look at their ratios and then um, supplement accordingly. Okay. So, but sorry, forgive me. Where are you going to be measuring these? You're talking hair analysis. Serum. Or? Serum. No, serum. So you use serum. So serum, zinc to copper. And if you see yeah. what sort of thing going out of whack, forgive me, I, I just want to make sure it's clear Sorry. in my mind. So making it clear, uh, I use serum zinc, even though it's not necessarily an accurate measure or concentration of zinc in the body because we need to compare it yeah. to the copper. Yeah. And if you've got a high copper to zinc ratio. Gotcha. So we're looking at about one, one to one is okay. You don't wouldn't do anything with a one to one, around one to one. But if it's out of, if the zinc's higher, significantly higher, then you, that is equated to um, greater severity of psoriasis, and gotcha. so then you need you'll need to work with that. Gotcha. And and mm. so you're talking there that you you give zinc. Yeah. Um, to and, to um, uh, competitively inhibit the the copper. Yeah, and you measure it, so you just keep watching the zinc come up. Yeah, so you, I, I kind of am a bit leery about just giving zinc and it forever and ever. Amen. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, you've really got to yeah. if you're going to give zinc according to this ratio, um, the serum levels, then you want to supplement. You get your baseline supplement and then retest. Brilliant. You mentioned herbs before with regards to, or you measure treat. You mentioned treatment before with regards to, um, you know, um, somebody's emotional state. So, are there herbs that are certainly effective and don't have any problematic effects on psoriasis? Like, for instance, you know, kava. Everybody might be thinking, oh, I know you'll give them dermatitis, but that's at unusually high doses. So, is kava yeah. effective in the dosages that we would normally use, and does it present any issues? Well, not that I know of. I think with um, if you look at what's happening in psoriasis patients specifically, um, there's some trends, mm. and so you kind of would start with that as a concept and see if those trends are actually occurring in your in your individual patient, yep. and then find out what is. But there is, you know, a hyper-responsive HPA axis. It's still often within normal range, but that is associated with disease severity or flaring in response to stress. So this is people who have persistent or stress-responsive disease. 
And when I look at uh, many of the psoriasis patients that come to see me, a lot of them are in that situation. The disease is stress responsive. Yeah. Um, they generally show low mean cortisol levels, especially those with higher daily stress or and a blunted cortisol response. So yes, you might use carver, but I probably, uh, particularly if someone presented with anxiety, um, I guess also coupled with that um, blunted cortisol response um, and low mean cortisol levels, there tends to be a higher sympathetic adrenal medullary effect. So they're kind of sympathetically driven. Yeah. And that impacts on the skin directly. It increases the leukocytes um, in, in moving into the skin and it also then also feeds back onto that adrenergic response. Yeah. So the stress on all levels will disrupt the skin's barrier and delay recovery. So I think it depends on the patient. I'd be looking at supporting the HPA axis yeah. and that cortisol responsiveness and or anxiety. And carvel would be one of the herbs that I would use if anxiety was the case, yes. Yeah. But with regards um, to, say, licorice or, you know, there was the deglycerisonized yeah. licorice used as a cream years ago, but internally licorice, good old licorice, wouldn't that help? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I, I kind of don't list off the herbs that I use because I often use combinations. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, there's rhodiola with ania, licorice, um, elithrococcus. I'll kind of use a combination of those things, whatever is individually um, uh, whatever appropriate. I think is appropriate for yeah, the individual. Yeah. So I don't have any really strong opinions about what what to tell you here because it's more individually based. Yeah. But certainly supporting the HP axis with regards to their stress response. Absolutely. So yeah. The other thing, I just um, on as a complete aside in terms of treating their sympathetic, you know, dominance, and also inflammation is um, vagal nerve stimulation. Mm-hmm. So this isn't actually a herbal treatment, but um, of course there's that feedback to the brain about from the gut microbiota via the vagus nerve mm-hmm. and. Um, but if you have people who have a um, uh, their vagal nerve isn't as active as it should be, yeah. um, you can actually treat um, the vagal reflex and you know kind of stimulate the efferent vagal um, nerve, and that can actually dampen down inflammation. So if you've got someone who's particularly sympathetic dominant and highly inflamed. Sometimes vagal nerve stimulation can actually just take the edge off so you can then get in with your anti-inflammatories and um, anti-anxiolytics and all of that, you know, sorry, anxiolytics, not anti-anxiolytics, but anxiolytics, yeah. So So I will often recommend that. Yeah, and and where is that done? Uh, Well... So the other area that I'm working in is pain management and I work with a team of um, musculoskeletal therapists or myotherapists and they do um, lots of vagal nerve stimulation and that's through um, ear acupuncture or stimulation. But then we send patients home with exercises such as singing and gargling and fun things. Ah, okay. (laughs) You know, activities that they can do themselves. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, breathing exercises to actually just... um, you know, homework. Singing. I didn't <laughs> know singing. Down. Singing yeah. has an effect on vagal nerve stimulation. Yeah, beautiful. I did Absolutely not know that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, watch out, world. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm so going to sing more. Singing in the shower or singing in the shower. <laughs> Get some, some songs that you can really belt out a tune to. <laughs> this is not humming as well. So if you're not, 
you know, into singing, hum along to a song. Yeah. Or gargle until your eyes water. Now, that's not a fun one, but it has to be until your eyes water. <laughs> uh, okay. Yeah. These are good practical so things, just, though. This is brilliant. Well, it is a little bit, you know, what can patients do at home yeah. as well to support themselves? And that's just one that, that assists with not only their stress response, but also the inter- inflammation. So I love something that's got a dual effect. Yeah. Brilliant. Mm. And reduces stress. Fantastic. Or reduces stress yeah. in you and gives stress to your wife. Or <laughs> when, when I sing. Something like that. Yeah. <laughs> right. So what what caveats? You mentioned one. You know, we've, we've mentioned it twice now with the polyunsaturated fatty acids. What caveats of therapy should there be or should practitioners be alert to? Uh, sure. I think that if you, uh, with patients, okay, so if there's, severity of psoriasis is continuing or you're not getting any, it's not improving, um, then I think that that's where you've really got to look at what you're doing and perhaps, you know, seek alternative treatment as in, you know, standard treatment, standard care, because there is that, in the back of my mind, there's that quality of life. Mm. What is happening for this person? And if I'm not getting a, a good effect working with this patient, what's their quality of life like and how are they coping with the the presentation you know that they have to face the world every day Mm. so sometimes I've done this with a number of patients we sit down we've had a really good conversation okay what's the next step how are you going maybe it's time to go back to see a dermatologist and see what other treatment options you have and then sometimes they'll come back and talk to me about them as well and um and go from there Mm. Um, if it becomes uh, pustular, or it starts to the dermato- uh, sorry the psoriasis starts to spread, then that's definitely a, a trip back to the dermatologist or the GP if it's serious. Yeah, as in acute and um, occurring rapidly. Um, I do think caveats, uh, or maybe not caveats, but just being really conscious of managing the metabolic and cardiovascular risks associated with the condition, uh, that needs to be, I think, in the back of your mind all the time um, because they're the things that will actually be increased morbidity and mortality in the long run. Yeah. And um, I think that's probably the main thing. Mm. The other thing is uh, cirrhotic arthritis. Oh, I was just about to get to this, yes. I was going to say, what's yeah. the what's the interaction here? Uh, about 10% of people will, um, as with severe psoriasis, will actually present with cirrhotic arthritis. And it's often misdiagnosed at a, at a GP level without being critical there, but it's not picked up as cirrhotic arthritis. Mm-hmm. And so there's not the direct association made between the psoriasis and, and that form of arthritis. Um, so uh, it's, it's probably a higher incidence than 10%. But it's uh, frequently it's picked up as rheumatoid arthritis instead at that first line diagnosis. Oh, okay. Yeah, so um, I think that that's associated with severity, and a lot of these um, conditions, such as the pustular form or the pustular disorders, the cirrhotic arthritis, the Crohn's, and the, the cirrhotic march towards cardiovascular disease, are all associated with severity. So if you and your patient can't 
keep the psoriasis in check at least, like not becoming worse, um, then that is a time to certainly refer on or you know seek another opinion. If you're managing to keep it in check and improve it, well then uh, I think that that's your aim. Now you may go through stages of your patient where they go into remission and then they come out of that and go into remission. So what you're looking for is longer periods of yeah. remission. Yeah. And um, as long as you can get. Yeah. And Ander, thank you. Like you've you've really opened my eyes actually to quite a few important lessons that we should be learning there. Not the least of which is caution doesn't mean contraindication. Just to be safely cautious, cautious that you're doing the right thing. But I do like the way that you a you're always treating the person, and so you're never falling into that quote unquote um, protocol um, guidelines instead. But um, you know, looking at the many ways in which we can interact with patients to help them face the next day, and that is largely to look at diet and lifestyle and, and their stress response and how they can cope. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. Thanks, Andrew. No, thank you for taking us through that. That's brilliant. This is FX Medicine, and I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. If you've enjoyed what you've heard today on FX Medicine, Please engage with us and let us know what further topics you'd like us to cover. You can get in contact with us through our website, fxmedicine.com.au, or look for FX Medicine in your favourite social media platform. You can also rate and review us on iTunes, and we'd really like to thank those who have already rated us. It's through your continued support that enables us to bring you current, complex and relevant topics to enhance your practice of natural medicine.